0: Let us pray. Out of the depths, we cry to you, O God, and we ask you to hear our prayer from whatever experience and location and moment we pray it. And as we gather in this place, We ask you to silence in us any voice but your own. And as we hear your word yet again, transform us to know you and to serve you for Christ's sake. Amen. Last Sunday, we read significant portions of the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, and we will revisit those words again today. This morning, I'm going to start at the 38th verse of the story. You might remember that Jesus had been traveling, receiving word that his friend Lazarus was dead. He lingered a while and then came to town. Let us hear God's word. Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing there, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm not a journalist. But I've heard about the five W's and an H of a good news story. So that will be my organizing concept for the day. You know them, what, how, why, who, where, when. What is our ethical and moral mandate to reconciliation in our broken and fearful world? How do we practice reconciliation? Why and who, where and when? How does following Jesus compel us to act in the world? Where are we called to restore brokenness, to repair the breach, to do justice and mercy on God's behalf? Five W's and an H. To set all this up, we'll take a deeper dive into the Presbyterian Confession of 1967. Now, I know you may be tiring of that confession. I might even be tiring of it by now. But I've got passion for it. And its vision is timely and urgent. Even 50 years after it was adopted by the Presbyterian Church, in fact, we've included a sizable portion of the Confession of 67 in this morning's bulletin. It might be helpful for you to find it. It's in kind of tiny print, but it's there. You might make, want to make reference to it. While earlier Presbyterian confessions clearly mentioned our responsibility to act in the world, whether it was Scotland in the 1500s or Germany in the 1930s, The Confession of 67 was the first statement of faith to specify, to identify particular issues around which the church is called to respond in a particular moment or a particular context. Now, naming those four issues was controversial and scandalous to many, but it was exhilarating and liberating to many others. Maybe we can find that introductory paragraph and read it together, the one that begins with, in each time. All right, here we go. In each time and place, there are particular problems and crises through which God calls the church to act. The church, guided by the spirit, humbled by its own complicity and instructed by all attainable knowledge, seeks to discern the will of God and learn how to obey in these concrete situations. The following are particularly urgent at the present time. Well, I must admit it is not soaring prose, but it makes the point, does it not? Particular problems and crises And then note the words that follow. It is a very serious litany and convicting as well. Race, warfare, peace and violence, poverty, gender and sexuality, demanding and difficult in 1967. What about 2017? First, the confession asserts, that God breaks down barriers and every form of discrimination based on racial or ethnic difference. The church labors for the abolition of all racial discriminations, it says, and ministers to those injured by it. This was the heart of the civil rights movement, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. But now, 50 years later, what is our calling? to break down barriers, to labor for the abolition of all discrimination, to minister to those injured by it. Black Lives Matter, racism, internal, individual, institutional, structural racism, microaggressions and macroaggressions. How does the confession of 1967 underscore the call for racial reconciliation 2017 then the confession asserts that reconciliation in Jesus Christ calls the nations to peace justice and freedom think about that moment the Vietnam War the Cold War how did we think of forgiveness of enemies then how on earth can we consider it now We believe that the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall would usher in a new era of global peace. What do we see when we look around? And so the confession poses a continually vexing ethical question. It says, although nations may serve God's purposes in history, the Church, which identifies the sovereignty of any one nation, or any one way of life with the cause of God denies the lordship of Christ and betrays its calling. That was such a controversial thing to say 50 years ago. How does it resonate now? Then the confession asserts that enslaving poverty in a world of abundance is an intolerable violation of God's good creation. Some of you remember Michael Harrington's The Other America, LBJ's War on Poverty. What progress has been made? How much has changed? The gap between the very rich and the very poor grows. In 2014, the top 1% owned 40% of the world's wealth and the bottom 80% owned 7% of the world's wealth. In Rochester, we know the crushing impact of concentrated poverty on education, gun violence, housing, jobs. So how are we challenged by a confession that says, a church that is indifferent to poverty or evades responsibility in economic affairs or is open to one social class only, or expects gratitude for its beneficence, makes a mockery of reconciliation, and offers no acceptable worship to God. Then finally, in this section of the Confession, we hear an assertion about gender and sexuality that focuses on the relationship between male and female This paragraph was added to the confession later, and it still feels, to me at least, like it's searching for clarity. But in 1967, we know that divorce rates were on the rise, that the increasing availability of contraception reframed perspectives about sexual practices, that sexuality was being used heavily in advertising, The women's rights movement was in its infancy and growing in strength. How were we then and how are we now led out of alienation into the responsible freedom of the new life in Christ? How do people have joy in and respect for their own humanity and that of other persons? What does this look like as sexual images bombard our children and youth? What does this look like as marriages are on the decrease, divorce is on the increase, and relationships are practice in evolving ways? What does this look like as glass ceilings continue to exist and women experience discrimination of all kinds? And what does this look like in a context that the framers of the confession either did not or could not anticipate? The LGBTQ experience and profile in church and culture and how what is progress to many and problem to some reframes our entire conversation about gender, sexuality, and identity. Well, that's the what. Each topic in the confession, race, warfare and violence, poverty, gender and sexuality could be its own sermon or sermon series or a lifelong exploration. But the point today is that reconciliation not only lives out in the lives of individuals and in our relationships with one another and with God, but must take root in the world. So a 50-year-old, somewhat dry, a little bit obscure statement still gives us a pretty clear direction about how this ethical and moral mandate claims us in 2017. Now, I often wonder if I were writing the statement now, would I say things differently? And the answer is yes, of course it would. It's 50 years. But I'm not sure I'd change anything on the list. I might add the environment, I might add something about interfaith relationships, but read the headlines or scroll down your phone, we are still convicted and compelled by these conversations about what progress has been made, what regression has happened, what potential and possibility remains. So that's the what. The who is easy. Us, of course. Each of us as individuals, as people of faith, as followers of Jesus, living in the world and then living collectively as the church. The who is easy. Us, all of us, individually and together, as is the where. It's simple, if not simplistic, here, anywhere, everywhere, where reconciliation's vision needs articulation and enacting. What about the how? It's a good question. These days, it seems as if we are quick to solve without comprehension, quick to prescribe without understanding, and especially quick to blame without understanding our own complicity and culpability on race or violence or poverty or sexuality. So we start by looking in the mirror, deep into our hearts and deep into our own souls. And then we talk, first with those around us, and then ever widening the circle. And then we begin the work of reconciliation, dismantling what we might have helped to build. The how will not be easy or quick, it will be complex and frustrating, but without the how, the words of the what are just that, words. Like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And we also must keep returning to the well of the why. To refresh our motivation and inspiration, we must continually renew the vision of reconciliation God's project and our call to be messengers of reconciliation. There are countless biblical entry points to this refreshment and renewal. Last last Sunday, you might remember we heard the story of the raising of Lazarus as a reminder of Jesus' solidarity with us in grief and consolation in the face of death. This morning, as Lazarus is raised and unbound from his burial cloths, as he has told to come out, we are reminded that as those who are unbound are liberated, so are those who unbind. When those who experience and suffer racism or poverty or sexism or xenophobia or any other form of discrimination or oppression whether it's fostered by individuals or groups, whether it's fostered by the culture or the church, when they are freed, and when those who have perpetuated and perpetrated are freed as well, then true reconciliation can happen. As we unbind, so we are unbound. That is, the poignant and profound connection between the why and the how of reconciliation. And the when, well, that's simple as well, if never simplistic. I could talk all morning about why the writers of the Confession of 1967 named it the Confession of 1967. Many of you might not be left at the end of that conversation. But the point was the particularity of the moment. So the win was 1967, and the win is 2017, and the win will be 2067. The win is now and always, any time and every time, until all are unbound, until all are reconciled until all find their place at the table, and hunger and thirst no more. Amen.